So as many of you know, we've, um, we've just come through a pretty tremendous season as a local church. Uh, we, we've merged with Lens Baptist Church just a couple weeks ago on June 25th. Uh, it was a six-month process of praying together and having some joint services together. And, and so now, though, we enter into a new season of, of doing the actual hard work of really integrating together, of becoming one people together. And so we're going to go through a, a new uh, preaching series for the summer. And this series is called Life Together. And we're going to do studies uh, just looking at what the local church is. Uh, the purpose of the series is to teach on the doctrine of the church and to shepherd the new congregation towards covenant renewal, assimilation of members, and a vision moving forward. So I'm going to preach the first handful of messages here. And then a majority of them, though, I'm just going to hand off to other confident brothers in the church uh, to preach. We're going to look at things like what is the mission of the church, uh, elders and deacons, baptism in the Lord's Supper, membership, congregationalism, church discipline. And then at the end of the series, we're going to spend a few uh, very specific uh, weeks looking at what it's actually supposed to look like. It's a big secret. <laughs> at the end... Of this, of this time, we're going to spend some very uh, specific and practical sermons about what life together looks like in very tangible ways. Because part of what we're moving towards is on September 10th, we are going to uh, have a new church covenant. We're revising it, and we're going to preach practically what it means to live life together as a new congregation. And all of us will freshly commit to that on September 10th. All of us will freshly sign that uh, church covenant, and it'll be the culmination point uh, for us. So that's where we're going this summer, we're looking at the doctrine of the church, uh, which is probably a topic that I, I think about more than any other, except the gospel. I'm kind of weird like that. Um, and actually, if you'd like more information and more and further study as you're, as you're thinking through this, uh, we've got some books on the back table on specific topics that we'll be talking about, things like membership and church discipline and elders and deacons and what is the gospel and what is the mission of the church and even put some books back there about the nature of our public worship time together and, and how those should be ordered and so on. So if you're interested in that, there's books back there that, that are free to you. If you'll read them and you'll actually read them in the next couple weeks, you can have them. If you're just trying to fill your shelves, uh, then you can buy them yourself. <clears throat> uh, so today's kind of a interesting day for me because uh, three of the like significant mentors in my life are in the room at the same time. I don't think that's ever happened before, so no pressure on me right now. We've got Chris, Greg Harris, and Michael Lawrence here, so that's that's uh, that's great. <laughs> so my grandfather, he uh, immigrated to the United States uh, from Norway when he was 19 years old, and he has a a pretty tremendous uh, life story. And when he first came to the United States, he was actually drafted uh, in the Korean War. He was drafted in the United States Army as a Norwegian citizen. And he went to the draft board and explained that he was a, a Norwegian citizen, and they said to him, if you, if you fight in the Korean War, then you'll receive uh, United States citizenship. So that's how my family became citizens uh, of this country. And he later had a pretty... Um, significant life. He went on to work for Hughes Aircraft, and he was an aerospace engineer. And I remember in his study, when I was a kid, there was actually um, this, this plaque on the wall that was signed by Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, because he'd worked on some of the avionics equipment um, and the Apollo missions. 
And when I was a kid, some of the things that he would take me and my brother to do is he was just very much into uh, airplanes and space and, and astronomy and such. And so he would drive us, we lived in L.A., and he would drive us down to LAX, and there was this, this, this bluff that we would sit on, and we would sit there for hours and just watch planes take off and land at LAX. And then he would take us up to the Griffith Park Observatory, and we would look through telescopes, and we would look at stars, and we would look at galaxies. And what the point of all this is, is that he really gave me and my brother a, a vision for big and grand things. That there's something big, there's something awesome, there's something that's beyond us. And so as we come to this first sermon, we're going to ask a big question. We're going to ask, what is the church? What is the church? And what answers come to your mind when you think of that question? The church is maybe a place where people gather to sing. Maybe the church is a building. Maybe the church is a social club of sorts. But what if the church is something much bigger than even that? What if we need a big and grand and large vision for what the church actually is? The kind of vision that my grandfather gave me by taking me to mountaintops to watch planes and observatories to gaze at stars. Because here is what the church actually is. The church is the display of the glory of God. The church is the display of the glory of God. Since our first parents, Adam and Eve, fell in the garden, we have lost sight of God. And since then, some have had a partial view of God, but only for a limited time, like Moses on the mountain. But when the Lord Jesus came, he said in John 14, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And the apostle tells us in Colossians that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In other words, Jesus Christ is a crystal clear picture of what the invisible God is actually like. He is the exact imprint of the nature of God. If you have seen the Lord Jesus, you've seen the Father. You've seen God. But now, the Lord Jesus has ascended. He sits at the right hand of the Father. He isn't visible to us anymore, at least in the sense that you and I are visible. But, my friends, this is the most radical thing of all. The most common image of the church in the New Testament is the body of Christ. The church is called the body of Christ. There's a remarkable place in the book of Acts, chapter 9, when uh, Saul of Tarsus is, is journeying on the road to Damascus, and Jesus Christ himself appears to him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The Lord Jesus in that moment so closely identifies with the persecution as Saul has been ravaging the church. He's been persecuting Christians that Jesus so closely identifies with the church that he can say, why are you persecuting me? The relationship to Jesus and his body is a significant and massive one. And the text that we're going to spend our time on this morning, one of two texts that we're going to spend our time on is Ephesians chapter 3 and primarily verse 10, which says this, that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That's the church that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is now on display. 
So when we think about what is the church, we're not just thinking about singing together. We're not just thinking about a building. We're talking about the glory of God being on display for all the world to see even further. This text will tell us that even the principalities. So let's read our text together. This is sort of a challenging sermon to write because uh, usually we go through books of the Bible and sort of go verse by verse, but writing a topical sermon on what is the church proved, proved to be uh, quite challenging. And actually, we're going to look at a different text as well. We're going to look at Ezekiel chapter 1, and we're going to look at pretty much the whole chapter, verses 4 through 28, because I want to give us a picture of what the glory of God actually is. So I'm going to read Ezekiel, and then we'll read Ephesians. As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north and a great cloud with brightness around it and fire flashing forth continually and in the midst of the fire as it were gleaming metal. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures and this was their appearance. They had a human likeness, but each had four faces and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot and they sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings on their four sides, they had human hands, and the four had their faces and their wings thus. Their wings touched one another. Each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side, and the four had the face of an ox on the left, and the four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. And their wings were spread out above. Each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wing of another, while two covered their bodies. And each went straight forward. Wherever the spirit would go, they went, without turning as they went. As for the likeness of the creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearances of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning. And the living creatures darted to and fro like the appearance of a flash of lightning. Now as I looked at the living creatures, I saw the wheel on the earth beside the living creatures, one for each of the four of them. As for the appearance of the wheels and their construction, the appearance was like a gleaming of barrel. And the four had the same likeness, their appearance and construction being as it were a wheel within a wheel. When they went, they went in any of the four directions without turning as they went. And their rims were tall in hand and awesome. And the rims of all four were full of eyes all around. And when the living creatures went, the wheels went beside them. And when the living creatures arose from the earth, the wheels rose. Wherever the spirit wanted to go, they went. And the wheels rose along with them, for the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When those went, these went. And when those stood, these stood. And when those rose from the earth, the wheels rose along with them, for the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Over the heads of the living creatures, there was the likeness of an expanse, shining like awe-inspiring crystal spread out above their heads. And under the expanse, their wings were stretched out straight, one toward another, and each creature had two wings covering its body. When they went, I heard the sound of their wings like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army. And when they stood still, they let down their wings, and there came a voice from above the expanse of their heads. When they stood still, they let down their wings. And above the expanse, 
Over their heads was the likeness of a throne, in appearance like sapphire, and seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness of a, with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around it. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. We'll stop our reading for there. Let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful that you've given us this picture of your glory. And Father, we ask that as we look at this text and we look at Um, other texts that you would enlighten for us and illuminate the scriptures to show us what the church is. It's an awesome thing that you would display your glory through your people. We pray that we would uh, know the weight of it, the honor of it, and that we um, we would live a life worthy of our calling. We ask for your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. So God is displaying his glory by gathering a people through the gospel. That's the point of the sermon. That God is displaying his glory by gathering a people through the gospel. So our first point to look at is God's glory. God's glory. Now this text that we just read is probably the most detailed vision of the glory of God in all the Bible. It's a very confusing text at first, especially if you had no idea that I was going to read Ezekiel chapter 1. There's other places that give us pictures of uh, visions of God's glory. Isaiah gives us a glimpse in Isaiah chapter 6. Moses gives us a glimpse in Exodus. But this has got to be the most detailed vision of the glory of God in all of the scriptures. Let's just look briefly at a couple things and then I'll kind of hone us in to what we're talking about when we're talking about the glory of the Lord. So verse 4 describes this incredible kind of light and brightness. And then what comes right after it is there's these four living creatures. And a lot of the text is describing these four living creatures. And it seems like they have four faces and four wings and they just sparkle brightly. And verse 9 tells us that the wings of these four touch each other. So commentators suggest that they create like this box of sorts. And they move sort of as this cohesive whole. This box of winged creatures that are just emanating tremendous amounts of of light and so on. Flashes of lightning as they move, it says, rays of light and splendor and brightness. And then they have wheels. And then verse 16 says that they have wheels inside of wheels. (laughs) Whatever that means, they get spinners, I guess. And as this thing moves, it has the sound of a roaring ocean. As it moves, it says it sounds like a charging army, verse 24. But at verse 26, something remarkable happens. It says that above this, there is this throne. And upon this throne, there sits one that has a human-like appearance. Verse 28 says, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud of the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness that is all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face. What are we talking about when we're talking about the glory of the Lord? Well, at least three things. At least three things. First, uh, anytime you, uh, 
if you were to look at a systematic theology that describes the attributes of God, there's plenty of ink that's spent on describing different aspects of his nature. Things like his omniscience, that he knows everything. Things like his omnipotence, that he's all powerful. But as I found, when you're actually looking at systematic theology to discuss his glory, it seems to be much more difficult. And it seems that the possible reason for that, that I would suggest, and I think Ezekiel begins to help us understand, is because his glory is the culmination of all of his attributes. His glory is his love and his power. His glory is his mercy and his judgments. And in some ways, you can see the different things that are appearing in Ezekiel's vision. This thing has the face of a lion at times, which is wrathful and furious. Verse 18, it says it has eyes that see all. That's God's omniscience and seeing all things. The wheels suggest that uh, he's omnipresent, that he goes as he where he's everywhere at the same time. His glory, as it were, is the culmination of all of his attributes. It's the fullness of who he is. It's his mercy and his justice. It's his love and it's his wrath. It's his power. It's its omniscience. It's the culmination of everything that he is. But the second thing that I think this text shows us when we think about God's glory is that it's full of qualifiers. Look at verse 28. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. The appearance of the likeness. The glory of God is the magnitude of all that God is. And certainly, there is a lot that the Bible tells us about God that can be known. But I suggest that part of the point of this vastness, of this vision, is to show us that God is altogether different from us. He is more infinitely radiant than the sun The entire deep expanse of all the universe where there are galaxies upon galaxies that are billions and billions of miles away from us. He upholds every single one of those by the word of his power. There are galaxies and stars that we will never even know about that God intimately is holding together right now by the word of his power. There are things, my friends, that we simply cannot know about God. He's revealed himself to us graciously. He's revealed aspects of who he is, but we are finite and he is infinite. And any time the scriptures seem to talk about the glory of the Lord, they're full of these kinds of qualifiers, the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. It's sort of like this, it seems like Ezekiel's almost saying to us. But we must always remember as we think about who God is and the glory of he is, he's infinitely beyond us. Our minds can't even begin to comprehend the vastness of who he is. My friends, I think oftentimes this is the hardest point for people to come to grips with. I would suggest that the average Portlander probably has the most difficulty coming to grips with the glory, the vastness of who God actually is. And the reason for that is because we all want to make a God in our own image. We want to make a God after our own likeness. We want a God that doesn't contradict us. We want a God that thinks the way that we think. If a reason that you don't believe in the God of the Bible is because the God of the Bible thinks about something differently than you do, then you don't really want a God that's glorious. You don't want a God that's glorious. You want a God that you've made in your own image. But here's the challenging point. If you've made a God in your own image, that God cannot actually be a help to you. It is simply a God to stroke your own ego. 
But if God is glorious, and he is, and he is altogether different from you, and he is, then he's a God that can actually break into your life in a radical way. He can break into your life in a radical way and challenge the things that you think. He can break into your life in a radical way and correct the way that you think about things. Maybe you're wrong. John likes that point a lot. What else are we talking about, though, when we're talking about the glory of the Lord? The second thing I think Ezekiel is giving to us here is that God is supremely important. God is supremely important. Another, the Hebrew word for glory is kavod, which one way to translate it means God has weightiness. It's God's significance. It's God's glory means that God is supremely important. It means, my friends, that if anything in your life is more important to you than God, then that is the thing that you're giving glory in your life. That's the thing that you're giving supreme value and worth to in your life. You're making something else to be the center of gravity, as it were, for you. And we simply do this all the time. We do this all the time. We make other things the center of gravity in our lives. And they can, the, the, the challenging thing is that they can even be good things. They can be good things. We can make our, our family the center of gravity for our life. We can make our kids the center of gravity for our life. We can make our spouse. We can make our career All these things can become the center of gravity in our lives, the thing that we give weightiness to. But the Bible here is telling us, at every turn the Bible is telling us, that God is the one that has supreme worth in all the universe. He is the one that must have supreme weightiness in all of your life. He must be the center of gravity in your life because everything else, my friends, will let you down. Everything. Even the best of wives and the best of women will let you down. Only God, as the center of your life, is intensely practical for us. What's remarkable about the doctrine of the glory of the Lord is as infinite and vast and big it is, it can very quickly be brought down into an intensely practical situation for us. But the third thing I think that Ezekiel's giving us, first, he's given us... um, The culmination of his attributes is his glory. The second is that he's supremely important. But the third is his splendor. The third is his splendor. Um, There's two ways to look at it. One is this text has told us that Ezekiel fell down. He fell on his face. Um, The New Testament will translate the word glory a little differently. It's a word that oftentimes means worship or praise. There's a place where uh, Jonathan Edwards says that God is not uh, God. God is not just glorified in us gazing. This is not. That's not how Jonathan Edwards would talk, right? God is glorified not just in His glory being seen, but in it being rejoiced in. God is glorified not just in His glory being seen, but in it being rejoiced in. What does Piper say? God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Moses said to God, show me your glory. Why did he do that? Why did he do that? Look, we spend all sorts of time and money surrounding ourselves with beauty. And it's not necessarily wrong. We spend time and money surrounding ourselves with beauty. We spend money listening to good music. We spend money to look at art. We spend money to make our homes look nice, to landscape our our gardens and so on. And and that's not necessarily wrong. Those are good things that God has given to us as gifts to us. But Moses knew something. Moses knew the real secret. 
Moses knew that his heart truly needed to be satisfied in the beauty and the glory of God. Not just to bend our knee to him because we have to, because he sits on the throne, but to delight in everything that he is. To gaze upon his beauty. To gaze upon his splendor. Our hearts, you can see it in your own heart, the longing for beauty, the way that you are drawn to an attractive woman or an attractive man. That's something that God has put in your heart. But Moses knew the secret when he said, show me your glory. I've told you, and I've shared that the last couple months, Vanessa and I have been praying the same thing. Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing I've asked of the Lord and that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all my days to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to acquire in his temple. One thing, David says. This is David the king, David the general. He is far more busy than you are or I am. He has far more responsibilities than anybody else in this room. He has far more trials and troubles than any of us do. And he says, one thing I ask. One thing. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to acquire in his temple. So how do you know you have it? How do you know that this glory has changed you? Verse 28 says you fall down and worship. It doesn't say fall down and worship. It says that they fell down. I fell on my face. Three possible reasons that I think we fall on your face in the presence of something like this. It could be for humility, just humbled by the presence of, of, of what's before you. It could be for submission, a fear to obey it, or it could simply be to worship it, to delight in it. Which is it? It's, you know, it's probably all three and then some. Humility is that he's ruling the world and not you are. He's ruling your life and not you. Look, the, the scriptures constantly are asking us, why are we anxious? Why do you have anxiety, my friends? Because we think that we need to control the future. We don't believe that the sovereign one is actually meticulously ordering every aspect of our lives and he can be trusted. But when we do, there's a humility that comes to us. We just fall down before him and say, you are glorious, you are God, you are altogether different than I am and we are and you can be trusted. You know the beginning from the end. You know exactly what my life needs. You know what's going to happen next Friday, next week, next month, and you can be trusted. But submission, it means that there's no part of your life that's off limits to him. There's not one corner of your life that is off limits to him. If you truly see his glory, if you truly see him as, 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 as he actually is, and you know that there's not one aspect of your life that is off limits to him. And third, that you would worship him. If you truly see his glory, then you would worship him as the supreme delight of your heart. You would say all else pales in comparison to your beauty and your glory. And you can be like David, who says, one thing I ask, that I would gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Have you seen his glory like that, my friends? Have you seen his glory? Well, that's our first point. I just wanted to make crystal clear to us what the glory of the Lord was. But the second thing that we need to look at this morning is that God is glorifying himself and he's displaying his glory by gathering a people. He's displaying his glory, not just in Ezekiel-like visions to us. 
He's displaying his glory in gathering a people. Something that can seem so ordinary to us is the way that he's chosen to glorify himself. From the beginning, my friends, God has been gathering a people. Adam and Eve, God made a place for them and then he placed them in that garden and then he dwelled with them. He gathered them so that he might dwell with them. All of creation, my friends, exists as an overflow of God's love to us. God eternally existed in three equally divine persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, who equally and mutually loved each other for all eternity past. And it was from that overflow of love that they had within themselves that they made the world as we know it. Do you know that God didn't make you and make the world because he was lonely, right? He didn't make the world because he had any need of you. He didn't make the world because he was looking for a companion. He made the world so that you might enjoy his glory. He made the world out of an overflow of love that's within himself. And he created you so that you might be in fellowship with him. He made you that he might gather you to himself. But sin entered the world. And when sin entered the world, we rebelled against this God who was glorious and made us. We said we don't want anything to do with him. But all of the story of the scriptures is God gathering a people back to himself. When we rebelled in Genesis chapter 6 through Genesis chapter 9, God called Noah. said, I'm going to call someone to myself. I'm going to judge the earth in righteousness and I'm going to call someone to myself. Seven read the call to worship this morning was the call of Abram in Genesis chapter 12. It's God calling someone. He said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. So Abram went as the Lord told him. God is calling people all throughout the scriptures. At the end of the book of Genesis, when Joseph and his brothers are in Egypt and they've been all brought together, the last thing that Joseph says, he says, now I know that what man meant for evil against me, God meant it for good to bring about that many should be kept alive as they are today. God is gathering people. The book of Exodus is God gathering his people taking them out of the house of Pharaoh, out of the house of bondage, out of the house of slavery. That's the text that our brother Dan read for us this morning. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. God is glorifying himself by gathering a people to himself. The whole purpose of God's saving act in the book of Exodus, and the whole purpose of God's saving act, as we'll see on the cross, is that he might bring a people to himself to know him and enjoy his glory. That's the point. That's the entire point, my friends. From the beginning, God has been gathering a people. When we get to the New Testament, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is woes in Matthew 23 against Jerusalem. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children together as hens gather her brood under her wings. The Lord Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the seed of Abraham, went to gather his people. That was the whole purpose that he came And now, my friends, we have the church. The church, the word simply means a gathering or an assembly. 
A church is the gathered people of God. When you woke up this morning, you probably thought to yourself, I think I will go to church. And you probably think that you're sitting in the seat that you're sitting in right now because you decided to get up, get dressed, get in the car, and come here. But the reality situation is that God gathered you here today. God brought you here. God is gathering a people in its seemingly ordinary circumstances. There are thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of local assemblies of churches gathering all around the world today on the Lord's Day. God is bringing them together for the sake of his own glory, that they might rejoice in all that he is, and that the way that the church and the assembly is gathered might actually be a display of his glory to the nations, to the communities around us. When we meet on the Lord's Day, it is God that gathers us. Throughout the book of Acts, there's constantly these two words that are going together of gathering and assembly. Gathering and assembly. I'll just give you a couple examples. When they had arrived, they gathered the church together, Acts 14, 27. Acts 15, 30 says, they gathered the congregation together and they delivered the letter. Acts 20 says the same thing. 1 Corinthians 5 says the same thing. That when you gathered and are assembled... God is gathering a people together that they might be assembled together on the Lord's Day as a local church. That's point two. It's fairly straightforward. It's fairly obvious throughout all of the scriptures that God is gathering a people for his namesake. He's doing it from the beginning and he's still doing it through the church now. So let's look at our Ephesian text for just a few moments here. Ephesians chapter 3, I'm going to read us 8 to 12. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Look, in verse 3, which I didn't read to us, he says that a mystery is being made known to me by revelation. What is this mystery that's being made known? And I guess I should make a point. Uh, a mystery in the New Testament uh, doesn't, mean like a, it, it doesn't mean like a whodunit. Uh, a mystery in the New Testament means that something that had previously been concealed or not known about is now being made known. That's what a mystery is. Something that had been hidden for ages, as this text says, is now being made known. That's the mystery. It's not like a whodunit. Okay? You, can put your, uh, you can put your magnifying glass away. Verse 4, he says, the mystery is called the mystery of Christ. He says, the time has come that what was, was formerly not known should be now made known. And he tells us what it is in verse 6. This grand mystery of Christ, this thing that was hidden for ages, and it's simply this in verse 6, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. The Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The Gentiles, 
the revealed secret is that in Christ Jesus and through his gospels, the Gentiles have now become fellow heirs with Israel, members of the same body, shares in the same promises. This is absolutely contrary to most Jewish expectation, that the Messiah would come to save both Jew and Gentile and bind them together, both into one new people who together inherit all the promises of God. That's the church. The church is that Jew and Gentile come together inheriting and sharing in all the promises that God has given to Israel. In chapter 2 of Ephesians, Paul will explain this detail, uh, this mystery in detail. In, in, in 12 through 14, he says to the Gentiles, remember that at one time you were separated from Christ, that you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenant of promise. You had no hope. You were without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near in the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who has made us both Jew and Gentile, one, and has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. My friends, all those negatives in verse 12 and 13 are now positives to us. We are not strangers to the covenants of promise anymore. We are those that have hope in the world. We are those that have God in the world. We're not alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. We've been brought near, Jew and Gentile together, common heirs, co-heirs in the church. This is the grand plan and mystery of God. And the gospel that Paul preaches is the good news that we, we Gentiles, may become fellow heirs with Israel by simply trusting in the finished work of Christ. And Paul saw that his job that was given to him by God was to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's his job. So this mystery, this mystery of Christ is that in his death on the cross, he purchased not just eternal life for individuals who trust him, On the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ did not just purchase eternal life for individuals who trust him. He purchased and formed a new people. He purchased and formed a new people, a church composed of Jew and Gentile who are fellow heirs together of God's promises and are beneficiaries of God's grace. The great purpose of God is to bring everything together in Jesus Christ. But point three, that this is through the gospel. We've already been, we've already been halfway through that point, it seems, already, but I'm just going to crystallize the gospel for us, that God is displaying his glory by gathering a people through the gospel. He's displaying his glory by gathering a new people through the gospel. There's a place in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 through 6, where it says, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he's blessed us in the beloved. So what Paul's telling us at the beginning of this letter is that he has predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, to the praise of his glorious grace. Now, we've been talking in the first part of this sermon 
all about the glory of God, the splendor of it, the massive uh, uh, implications and nature of it and so on. But it seems here that if we were to view the glory of God sort of like a mountaintop, at the peak of that mountaintop is the glory of his grace. The glory of his grace. And it says that you and I were predestined for adoptions as sons and daughters in Christ to the praise of the glory of his grace. That is an aspect to his glory that's seen in the gospel most supremely, and that is his graciousness towards undeserving sinners like you and me. God is displaying his glory to the world, and primarily that glory is the glory of his grace through the church. The fact that we have been brought near to God is an absolute act of sheer mercy to us. We were strangers from him, running the other direction from him, but now he brought us near through the blood of his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And that glorifies him. That glorifies him in a way that nothing else could. And then Paul tells us that to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. My friends, the description here of the nature of the gospel and the nature of who our Lord Jesus is is that it is unsearchable riches. That we will spend all of eternity. I've heard a quote one time that said, why does eternity last forever? Because it's gonna take that long for us to understand all the unsearchable riches of Christ towards us. It's a bottomless ocean to us. Infinite depths of the sea is the nature of his love and kindness towards us in Christ. My friends, as we gather as a local church, let us constantly and always be searching the riches of his great love and grace towards us in our Lord Jesus Christ. My friends, that's what the church is. The church is a display of God's glory by gathering a people for himself through the gospel. Let us pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. Lord, we are grateful that you've called us together as a people. Lord, we just pray that you would help us now as we come to the Lord's Supper with great gratitude for what you've done for us in our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, God, in Jesus' name, amen. So we do come to that time in our service now where we will celebrate what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us as we partake of the Lord's table together. Uh, The table is open to all those who have repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus Christ, uh, who've been baptized. If you're a member of another local church and that describes you and you're visiting us today, you're welcome to to partake of the table with us. If that doesn't describe you and uh, you don't know our Lord Jesus Christ, then encourage you to not take the elements. Instead, just to consider uh, what's been preached today. Consider what it would mean for you to uh, bend your knee Uh, to the Lord Jesus and to give your life to him, to repent of your sins and to trust him. Uh, You can come up row by row and you can take the elements back to your seat and one of the elders will come up and lead us uh, corporately uh, in the Lord's Supper together.